If you have a Bible, you can turn in the New Testament to John chapter 20, nearing the end of John's Gospel. Our New Testament reading will be John 20, verses 11 through 18. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She said to her, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. Reading will be chapter 4, verse 9, through... Chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, interestingly, it's a, an occasion where the English versification does not line up with the Hebrew versification. Uh, in the English, chapter 5, verse 1 uh, is actually the Hebrew, chapter 4, verse 14. And there is some question whether the verse is better taken with the preceding or the following section. The Hebrew has it with the preceding. Um, and so we'll trust they knew more than the English did. And we'll take it with the preceding. (laughs) So I'll read verse 9 through chapter 5, verse 1. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plans that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. 
Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Now, Father, no one can understand your word, heavenly things, spiritual things, without, without your spirit. For left to ourselves, our natural mind is at enmity with you and your truth and resists its plainness and its testimony. And so we ask that you would grant to us that life-giving and knowledge-giving, light-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit even now, as your word is read and preached, and that we might derive from this word that blessing which you would distribute, whether it be correction or reproof or encouragement and building up, Whatever it is, Lord, may Christ be exalted. And may you grant us the eyes of faith to see him. And the realization of your purposes to bless and for life. That you are bringing to pass and will one day make all in all. We pray this and ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My engagement to Samantha was brief but miserable. Not for the reasons you might think. I was living in California at the time, and uh, I had finally convinced her to marry me. No, not really. Um, I finally convinced her parents to let her her marry me. (laughs) So I flew back from California, and I proposed to Samantha in October of 2010, I think. That's difficult. (laughs) October of 2010, and I I proposed, and she said yes. And uh, for a glorious day or two, we uh, considered our future together. We planned the wedding for December. Not that long. I think it was like eight weeks later. Uh, We planned it, and my future was so visible right before me. It was right there. It was right there. It was right there. And then I'd get back on a plane to go to California, and it was gone. <laughs> the loveliness of the future being so near at hand. Everything that I had wanted, the woman that I had been longing to marry, she was right there. And then I had to leave and go back to the, to the miseries of Southern California, San Diego, 75 and sunny all the time. No, my son was, not my son, the son, as you went, was in Chicago. I wanted to be in the winter. <laughs> Mike has presented a glorious future for God's people in this chapter. Starting in verse 1, he pictures this glorious future when God's mountain would be elevated, when God would be shown to many for the excellencies of who he is and what he was doing, and that God's people would finally see 
And not just God's people, but the nations would finally see that the Lord is worthy of worship. They would obey him and follow him willingly because they understood that his paths were paths of life and blessing. And not just that, but peace, prosperity, protection, abundance, war would cease. Everyone would have. It would be wonderful. It would be like marrying the girl of your dreams. (laughs) And then he brings them back to the present. Now, he says, things aren't like that. (laughs) Now things are very difficult. Now there's the stress. The future is bright for God's people, but the present is difficult. For Micah's audience, the reality of difficulty was on display and that the same nations that he had just told them were going to serve the true and living God are actually at the gates trying to destroy them. That's difficult. The same nations whom God had promised were going to see his excellencies and bow the knee to him were going to be the site of Israel's exile and arranged in all manner of hostility against God and his people. He said, the future is glorious. What I'm going to do for you is wonderful. But right now it's really hard. But he says, take heart. Because the one who has promised this glorious future is at hand. And so there's courage to be had. There's encouragement to be had. There's provision to be had. Even as Jerusalem was about to face a nightmare. Even as their immediate future was going to be littered with difficulty and death of a brutal, brutal circumstance. He still says, the Lord is near. And this is for your good. This will lead to your life. And so we can consider the promises, the provision that God supplies to his people in the face of that juxtaposition of the wonder that will be contrasted with the difficulty that is and the encouragement that we can take until the day that glory is all in all. So we can first look at the promise that victory will come to them through defeat. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. It's plain that this is a time of great distress. Like his word comes to Jerusalem in the throes of difficulty, right? Now, why do you cry aloud? There's wailing, anguish, pain everywhere around him now. And it's a stunning contrast with verses 1 through 8. In the last days, in the future days, in that day, and then verse 9, now. In fact, you get three nows in a row, which is why we included 5-1. You get now in verse 9, 
You get now in verse 11. And then you get now in 5.1. He's going out of his way to show that it's not yet. But even now, there's encouragement to be had. Even now, there's a provision to take hold of, even though it's in the midst of great difficulty. Micah says, in the last days, in the future, glory, prosperity, peace. In the present, now, distress. The cry of anguish and pain. And we can immediately relate to that. We are in a situation that is remarkably similar to them. That's what John says in 1 John 3. We belong to Christ now. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. Now, not yet. That's the tension that colors the entire Christian life, isn't it? Now we are God's children. Now we have tasted of the excellencies of Christ. And we think, ooh, but not yet. I wish the future were yet, now, already, (laughs) but it's not. And it's that tension that opens up between the now and the not yet in which we live our Christian life. Things are not yet whole. We are not yet whole. Continue to contend, flesh and spirit. The world continues under the grip of the evil one. The kingdom of Christ is not yet all in all. Our flesh continues to assail us. The devil continues to assail us. The world continues to assail us. We are God's children now, but not yet are all things whole. This present distress is our reality just as it was Jerusalem's reality at the time. So where does Micah direct God's people to look in the midst of the now of distress? To their true king, to their true counselor. He asks, is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? There's probably two layers to this question that are going on. Israel was constantly arranging her salvation with earthly kings. We don't do that in the church. Israel was constantly arranging her salvation with earthly kings. Well, if Assyria is coming, we'll just make a treaty with Egypt. If Assyria is coming, I'll just go through the back door and work something out with Babylon. Or maybe if we get a coalition of enough of these little kingdoms, we can stave off the titan that is Nineveh. They were constantly, constantly, constantly scheming to get the right coalition, the right political configuration to ensure that their earthly kingdom would not fail. But they had the promise that their kingdom would not fail in the covenant that the true and living God had made with them. And that's where Micah directs them to look. He doesn't direct them to look at earthly kings and earthly counselors. He says, look to the Lord of hosts. Look to the counselor who possesses all wisdom, whose plans never fail. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Micah says your confidence is not to be found in kings and coalitions, counselors and armies. Your confidence is in the Lord of hosts, the maker of heaven and earth. Where does my help come from? From the maker of heaven and earth. There is no higher tower. There is no more secure refuge. Flee to him. And for those who flee to him, Micah says, we are not spared pain. For those who flee to Christ, you're not spared pain. Anybody here been spared pain? 
Anybody here been spared misery? Anybody here been spared the aches of living in a world of woe? No, that's not the mark of having taken refuge in the true and living God. For those who take refuge in the true and living God, they're not spared pain. They're promised that those pains lead to life. They're going to cry out with the rest of Israel as Israel is defeated. But in the Lord, that victory become, that defeat becomes victory. That cry of anguish becomes the cry of a woman in labor. And that's the image that Micah uses to help God's people understand their distress. A woman in labor. Pain has seized you like a woman in labor. Rise, bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. I'm not sure if you've ever seen or heard a woman in labor. (laughs) How would you describe it? How can I describe it without getting in trouble? Would we call it a dignified affair? Would we say this is the beauty of the wedding day? I would not say those things. (laughs) And yet, paradoxically, it's her glory. Isn't it? Bringing forth life. Bringing forth a seed. A seed of a woman. She's the bearer of life. And by virtue of God's promise that though her pains be multiplied, the seed will issue forth. It's a troubling and beautiful theme. Blessing comes through curse. Life comes through death. Unless we romanticize the curse and death, Micah says the pains of anguish are severe and real. This is not idealized suffering. This is brutal, heart-rendering defeat. Look at each iteration of pain that he sets forth in verse 10. What are the labor cries? What is the pain that Israel is going to experience? For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. That's the pain. That's the anguish. Those are the labor cries. And each step gets progressively worse. You're forced to leave your home. We've had a number of families move these days. They say that moving is one of the most stressful events in life that you can experience. And that's when you move willingly. (laughs) These are people who are expelled from their home. You will be forced to leave your home. You'll be forced to leave everything that is familiar and comfort and known to you. You're leaving. Can you even imagine that? Being forced from your home? Being forced from a place that you at least understood. But not only that, they're forced into a a transience and a vulnerability. This next verse proves that camping is a curse. I'm not a fan of camping. People often say, "Let's, let's despise all of God's common blessings of shelter and electricity and plumbing and manufacture the curse of God by living in a tent in a field. I'll say, no, thank you. (laughs) And this verse proves it. (laughs) They're going to be forced to live in a field. (laughs) It's a nightmare. Usually when you move, you have your dream home picked out. You're moving from one home to another. They're forced from their home and they're forced into a dangerous situation. Needless to say, they're not staying with relatives on the way. 
They're not staying at a best Western. They're beyond human rule. They're beyond the safety of the gate. Animals, criminals, robbers, vulnerability will be their reality. This verse maybe has in view just the painful journey that they were going to make from Jerusalem to Babylon. Or it's a poetic lens on which they're invited to see Babylon, which claims to be a city, but is really a wilderness full of lions and monsters. That's how it ends. You're going to come to Babylon, a place that pretends to be a city, but is really the den of adders, a dragon's lair, a land of lions and snakes, a land of danger and lawlessness, a land of ancient hostility to the true and living God, the land of Nimrod, that hunter, that giant, that monster, the land of that old satanic tower. That's where you're going. That's where you're going to live, a place of hostility. These are the labor pains. This is brutal. How do you help a woman in labor? You tell her to breathe. And you tell her to think of the joy that's set before her. You tell her to breathe. And you invite her to consider how it's all going to end. In life. In the baby. That's how he ends. There you shall be rescued. He says it's going to be ugly. The pain is going to be brutal. But it's going to issue forth in life. It's going to issue forth in redemption. It's going to issue forth in an exodus. A new exodus. A new creation. Where I reconstitute you as my people. Where I marry you in righteousness and truth and steadfast love. From there I shall save you. From there I shall deliver you. But now, now distress. But it's a distress that does not lead to death. It will bring about life, not because it is naturally good. As we just considered this morning, there's nothing good about exile. There's nothing good about being expelled from your home. There's nothing good about being forced to live in a field. There's nothing good about being forced to live in a place that is at enmity with the true and living God. The reason it issues forth in life is because of the promise of the true and living God. It's because that the maker of heaven and earth has said it, it will work for good. And this promise has been sealed for us in the blood of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, the Lord Jesus Christ endured the cross and the shame. And that was the supreme variation on this theme of blessing through curse of life through death. For the natural eye sees the cross and considers it and sees and understands no good thing. And yet the eyes of faith see at the cross the true and living God reconciling sinful man unto himself through the all-sufficiency of the Son becoming a curse for us. And thus, this seals unto us every lesser iteration of that theme of our encounter with curse in this world and the certainty that though it be apparent that curse is going to triumph, this too will yield blessing. 
What's the greater gift? What's the greater miracle? Reconciling sinners, enemies, and bringing them to be children? Or making sure that every difficulty befalls, uh, that befalls us as children works for our salvation? He did the greater. He's doing the lesser. And we will give him praise for all on the day that we see and understand. Do you groan now? Are you groaning? There's kind of an unexpected blessing in this. Because if you're groaning, there's hope. If you're not groaning, have you seen? Have you seen the flesh? Have you seen your need for forgiveness? Have you seen the world of woe? Have you seen that it's still under the grip of the evil one? Have you seen the temptations of the world and they are at cross purposes with the plans of God? Have you seen any of this? This is what yields to groaning. If you're not groaning, have you seen? Do you know the Lord of glory? The comfort here is for the groaners. (laughs) It's for those groaning. And if you are groaning, Groaning in the face of your sin. Groaning in the sad state of this world. Groaning in the face of a spiritual warfare that you barely understand, let alone can stand against. If you're groaning, there's comfort. Because the groans are the labor pains that lead to life. That's what Paul says. Now we groan in this tent. Now we groan in this tent, but we are of good courage. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. And until then, the church looks in faith to her husband, to the one who's at her side saying, breathe, breathe. I conquered death. This is going to issue forth in life. I conquered death. This is going to issue forth in life because I am the resurrection and the life. But there is another difficulty that Micah attends to. Unfortunately, in the delivery room, our husband is not the only person. There's also the presence of the wicked and their apparent triumph, which Micah turns to in verses 11 through 13. Look at God's promise in the face of the apparent triumph of the wicked. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Micah takes us through the whole painful process of being expelled from home, living in a field, settled in an enemy city, being forced to remain there. And then he says, you're going to be redeemed. You're going to be rescued. And then verse 11 is another dash of cold water. (laughs) Because he brings us to that glorious moment of victory. And then he brings us back to the presence. Now, again, that juxtaposition, the loveliness of what's to come, contrasted with the difficulty of the presence. Now, many nations are gathered against you. It's like you're Frodo and Sam journeying to Mordor and you fall asleep and you manage to dream of the Shire and cold beer and dancing with friends and it's wonderful and you start to taste it and smell it and your heart starts to warm with the vision and then you wake up and you're surrounded by death once more. 
That's the juxtaposition. That's the contrast. But even here, he's going to take us through a similar pattern. Difficulty, but through it, God's glory. The armies that have gathered are no mean armies, mean in terms of insignificance. They are quite mean. They're actually orc-like. If you look at Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5 describes the armies that are arrayed against Israel, and they're more monster than man. He pictures them as a teeming brood of cruelty that is beating itself up against the door of Jerusalem. The barbarians are surrounding you. And don't forget the vulnerability. Oh, pregnant woman. The monsters are at the gate. Oh, woman in labor. It's an incredibly vulnerable scene. Do you feel it? A woman in labor surrounded by cruel men. (laughs) You can hear the cruelty in their speech. Let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. It's difficult enough to be defeated. It's doubly difficult to be defeated by someone who exalts over your defeat with cruel malice. We're trying to teach our children to win with grace and dignity and to lose with grace and dignity. Losing with grace and dignity is no easy thing. It's much harder, though, to lose with grace and dignity before someone who is winning with cruelty and malice. That's the picture and the dilemma that Micah opens up here. It's the triumph of the wicked, the triumph of the ungodly. Isn't that going to be impossible to overcome mentally? Isn't that going to be impossible to overcome spiritually? To see the temple defiled, to see Jerusalem defiled, to see these pagans trample the courts of the living and true God, to see God's people reduced to nothing at the hands of barbarians. How are we going to endure that? What could possibly fortify our souls against such a brutal coming day? Oh, Micah tells them, he says, they don't understand. He says, you understand. They don't understand. If you read Isaiah chapter 10, as Assyria comes and the king of Assyria exults over the defeated people of Israel, the Lord gives him a word of warning. He says, you you think that you did this. You delighted in the destruction that you caused. You didn't do this. I whistled for you. You accomplished my purposes, though you knew it not, and took no pleasure in being my instrument. Shall the axe say to the one who wields it that it is the axe who is in control? One of the provisions that God's people have here in the face of what undoubtedly would have been bewilderingly difficult is that they know the truth, that this is not the triumph of wickedness, but rather this is God's mysterious purpose being worked out. Doesn't Peter make the same point in Acts chapter 4? Acts 4, 25 through 28. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... 
There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Every wave of cruelty that washed over Jerusalem was under the control of the maker of heaven and earth who tells the sea that it can go this far and no further. It was true then of Jerusalem as they were made the object of Assyria's cruelty, of Babylon's cruelty. It was true at Calvary where the Lord Jesus Christ was made the object of the malice of men to accomplish the mysterious purposes of God. Crucified for us. Made a curse for us. The solace of the church in the face of the apparent triumph of the ungodly is the certainty that not a hair falls from our head apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. Not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. Not a nation moves apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. And the cross confirms to us in the plainest colors, in the plainest tones, that wickedness does not triumph. That the ungodly do not triumph. That the righteous one triumphs, the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are in him. The ignorance of the nations here is set forth as a consolation unto us. And perhaps you can feel in that ignorance a trace of pity arise in your heart. To act under such a delusion that you have somehow thwarted the true and living God. I'm amazed that the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary makes the ignorance of the masses an occasion to pray for them. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The heart of the Savior, the mercy of the Savior there on display as the deranged nations were arranged against Him, elicited from His heart, not let them be cursed, but Father, be merciful. What refrain do we echo? When we feel the world crouch in around us, when we feel the ungodly begin to seemingly triumph, wherever it may be, wherever you may see it, is it the cry of let them be cursed? Or is it, Father, they don't know. They don't know what's waiting for them. Be merciful to them. Open their eyes. The cry that's opened up to the church as we see the triumph of the righteous one in the face of wicked, the fact that wicked can do nothing save advance God's purposes. The glory that's opened up in that is partly the cry that the church can now make looking out at the deranged horde and saying, Father, they're not going to win. Be merciful to them. Please plunder their ranks so that more and more are brought to see, just like you brought me to see. Because I was in the midst of the deranged horde railing, crucify him, crucify him, and then you turned on the lights. The juxtaposition between the nations railing here against Israel and the promise that the nations are going to come and bow the knee to Israel's God invites us to consider that the day of favor is now. 
Now is the day of favor where the Lord Jesus Christ continues to cry, forgive them, forgive them. And in whom there is true forgiveness to be had for sinners who didn't dapple in a mild darkness, but drank deeply of it and railed against the light and everything that whiffed of the light. Now is the day of favor to find grace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the day that Micah here presents, the judging of the nations, is the day of justice that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to issue forth. This is a thorough threshing of the nations. There is nothing left of the ungodly after they have been threshed. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people and, they, and shall devote their gain to the Lord. The ESV doesn't do a great job here. Misses it. You shall beat in pieces is more accurately you shall pulverize to dust. There's nothing left The wind is about to blow this chaff away such that no wicked remains. And not only is there no wicked left, temptations are removed as well. Their wealth, their riches, which would have been idols, wrought in silver and gold, they're going to be devoted entirely to destruction. They're placed under the harem ban such that they're removed entirely. No longer any wicked. No longer any temptation. It is the removal of all of this. This is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ returning and judging the ungodly. For all those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ are going to receive justice. They're going to receive just recompense for what they have done. Every cruel intention of the heart that you've given vent to. Every lustful and greedy thought which has driven your hands to work will be made plain on the day of judgment and every person will receive exactly what their works deserve unless you're found in the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who take refuge in Him are made partakers of His life are clothed in his righteousness, partake of the choicest blessings of the kingdom of righteousness, forgiveness, life, and peace. Do you know this king? For he is coming back for his bride. But until then, the call to his bride is to resemble her king. That's the last verse. It's a difficult verse. I'm not going to give it the due attention that it deserves because I've gone long, and I apologize. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against you. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's not exactly clear what the call is in this passage. But what is clear is that Israel's king is going to be struck. Israel's king is going to be humiliated. That's what the blow to the cheek was. It wasn't really a death dealing blow. It was a humiliating blow. It was a blow that brought dishonor and shame. Showed that you were impotent to stop the one who was administering the blow. The fulfillment of this took place when Hezekiah was reduced to Jerusalem. Sennacherib came and he laid Judah low. 
and then he was laid low. It happened in Zedekiah when Nebuchadnezzar came and even destroyed Jerusalem. In both cases, the anointed of the Lord struck on the cheek. A humiliating blow. That much is plain. The true fulfillment of this came when the Lord Jesus Christ was struck. The Lord of glory, the author of life, the true and living God, struck by soldiers, spat upon by dust and ashes, given a crown of thorns, brought low, humiliated, made a public spectacle of for all to see. The king of glory humiliated for us. And so what does he call the community to do in the face of her king being subject to humiliation? He says, band together. The temptation when a leader would have been subject to such degradation would be to what? Flee and find a new leader. <laughs> Go somewhere else. You got to scatter. You got to get out of here because if the leader goes down, the rest of us are going down. Micah here issues a counterintuitive call. He says, band together around your wounded leader. Gather at the foot of the cross for there the counterintuitive blessing of the true and living God is to be had. Everything about our flesh says shrink back from the cross. Everything about our flesh says shrink back from humiliation. Micah says counterintuitively, lean into it. And find yourself amidst a community that is encouraging one another to lean into it. Not to shrink back, for we are not of those who shrink back but also not to rise up. This is an army. Band together. Oh, daughter of troops, this is not an impressive army. This is an army of pregnant women, <laughs> which would have been pretty useless in battle. Not only that, an army of pregnant women in the throes of labor. <laughs> this is not an army that is suited to win by power, by strength, by might. Isn't that what God himself says? Not by power, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is the fortitude of the labor cry. This is not the terrifying yell of the warrior. Now, don't get me wrong, as a man, I really resonate with the cry of a warrior. That's what men seem to do. That's why most of the fights in the church seem to be with men. We have this sort of fight mentality. Like, ah, you don't believe in predestination? I will kill you. <laughs> That's not the way to victory. The way to victory is the cry of the woman who endures. Who endures with an eye to life. <laughs> this is a call to lean into our humiliation. This is a call not to rise up. This is a call, perhaps, to turn the other cheek. If you get slapped in the face, maybe you turn the other cheek. Why? Because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. 
You get called upon to go another mile in a shameful condition, you go the other mile. Someone asks you for one thing, you give them another thing. Why? You lean into your humiliation. You lean into your lowliness and the terms and the conditions of this world because this world is bankrupt. <laughs> and that's what the cross demonstrates. Victory is not to be found in the terms and the conditions of this world and this nation's strivings and victories. Victory is to be found in denying yourself, taking up your cross, dying. For the one who loses his life shall find it. And we know this to be true because this is what's on display in the cross. The one who died to be raised again. And the word of promise that issues forth from this one is that all who die and are found in him will never die, but will see life. Will see life. This is the word that comes to us in our distress. And it is true because it comes to us from the author of life and truth itself. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word of encouragement that even in the face of distress, we can know the consolations of your promise and your purposes. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us by consideration of them such that whatever distress comes upon us in your providence, Lord, we might be fortified to bear it well and to look in faith and to walk by faith and not by sight such that we are not undone but rather find occasion to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ who is our life and in whom all your promises are yes and amen. For we ask in his name, amen.